See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are the children of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. Good morning, church. I want to mention just a couple things to you before we go to prayer and then open the word of God together. First, I just want to tell you that I miss you. And um, I am looking forward to when we can come back together. And I hope, honestly, that you are longing to be back together. If this feels normal and right to you, then that's concerning. We, we should long to be back together. And I want you to know that that time is coming soon. We have tentatively planned to start moving towards resuming our, our in-person gatherings on June the 7th. So assuming that nothing changes between now and then, that's, that's our goal. So would you pray with us as we move towards that goal and ask God to give us wisdom to know what that would look like and how we should proceed when we do come back together. So that's where we're headed. That's the first thing. Second, I want to remind you to join us at 1045 this morning on Zoom. If you don't know how to get there, uh, please reach out. It's our time when we get together. We, we sing, we pray, we read the scriptures, and it's a, an important time for us to, to come and stay connected to one another. The third, third thing is just a reminder to be faithful in your giving. I want to thank you for the faithfulness that you've shown over these couple months when we've not been together. Uh, most of you know how to use our online setup. Go to our website. You can give there. I just want to encourage you to be faithful in your obedience to Christ. Well, church, I can tell you that I am excited to share this next portion of Mark chapter 3 with you. It's a, a passage that God has already used um, in my heart, and I'm excited to share with you, and I've been praying that it will encourage and, and strengthen you for, for the week to come. But before we go to Mark, uh, I want to ask you just to join me in prayer. I'm thankful for the chance I have each week to pray for us as a church and to pray with you. So I hope that you will settle in and join me in, in prayer and, and use this time to, to prepare your heart uh, as we go to God's word together this morning. Let's pray. God, as we come to you this morning as your children, we are thankful for the chance to call you our Father. And we're thankful for Jesus because we know that it's only through him that we can be brought into your family. God, we come to you now as your church gathered in your name. And we come confessing that we are still in need of your mercy. We are completely dependent on your grace. God, this week we have not done all of the things that we should have done. And God, we also confess that we have done things that we should not have done. We have disobeyed and we have lived outside of your will for all these things. We ask your forgiveness. And we thank you that we know that through Jesus, forgiveness is available to us. God, we also come to you this morning with our requests. 
We need your strength. Many of us are weak. We need your healing. Some of us are struggling with physical issues. God, we ask for your healing power. We need your provision. We know that everything we have comes from your hand. We need your peace as we wrestle with anxiety and worry and fear. We need your wisdom and grace to be the parents that you've called us to be, to be the husbands and wives that you've called us to be, to be the single individual that you've called us to be, employees and employers that honor you. For these things and more, we admit our weakness and ask for your help. God, as we go to your word this morning, I ask that you would speak to us. Would you fix our eyes on things above and not on things on the earth? Would you help us to reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to you in Christ Jesus? Would you also make us bold and fearless witnesses of you and of your gospel? Would you help us to be faithful? God, we also pray for our children. We ask that you would help them to grow in love and in longing for you. Would you use us individually and as a church to help them to see that you are the only true source of hope and joy? And I pray the same for ourselves. Would you increase our hope? Would you increase our joy in you? Would you use your word this morning to open the eyes of our hearts to the beauty of Jesus? and the sufficiency of his work on our behalf. We are your people, gathered in your name, and we long to hear from you. Hear our prayers. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, I hope you will take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter three. As always, I hope you have your Bible open. I hope you following along. I think it's helpful for you not only to to hear me walk us through the scriptures, but to see it and to follow along as we go. This morning as we come back to Mark, we're going to be considering the family of Jesus, and in particular, who Jesus identifies as his family. I wonder if you've thought about this much, that Jesus had a family a mom and a dad and brothers and possibly a sister. He had these people who he grew up with and around and most likely even into adulthood, they were a significant part of his life. Remember the public ministry of Jesus doesn't start until he's about 30 years old. And I wonder if you've ever considered what it must have been like for his family as Jesus begins going out teaching in this new and authoritative way, healing and casting out demons. What would it have been like for them to to see or to hear about crowds flocking to Jesus, to witness his growing popularity? Or think about this. What would their reaction be as they hear him saying and doing things that are opposed to their religious leaders and to the religious establishment that they had been taught to honor. We aren't told a lot in the scriptures about the earthly family of Jesus, but in our passage this morning, we do get a a glimpse, a little peek into 
their thinking and their actions during this specific part of the life of Jesus. This point when his ministry is really beginning to gain momentum. And we get to see their reaction. There's something to be learned from the way they react. But the most significant thing we're going to see in our passage is what Jesus says about his family. And more specifically, who he identifies as his family. So that's where we're headed. But before we jump into this section, I want to help you consider how it connects back to what we started discussing last week. If you think back to last Sunday, we considered two different groups. Two different groups that were interacting with Jesus, the crowds and the called. And as we looked at these two groups, we considered that there's a difference between knowing Jesus and being near Jesus and actually being a true follower or a true disciple of Jesus. It's to say that it's, it's not enough to have a head knowledge or even to have good thoughts of Jesus. That's not enough. We're called to repent of our sins and to claim him as our Lord and to follow him as his disciples. That's what we talked about last week. And along with that, we considered that that there were so many who saw Jesus, but they never saw their need for him. Or maybe they knew about him, or they, but they, just, they saw him as a teacher or a healer, not as a savior. And we're going to see something very similar as we come to our text this morning. We're considering the family of Jesus, in particular, his mother and his brothers. And what we're going to see is that in many ways, they are much like the crowd, they don't yet fully understand who Jesus is or what he's doing. So that's where we are headed. But before we read the text, one more uh, point of introduction, something that uh, you need to know before we read the text. You may have already noticed that the selected passage for this morning is actually broken up into two parts. Verses 20 and 21 of Mark 3 and verses 31 to 35. So two different sections, and there's verses in between that we're not going to consider this morning. But what I want you to see is that as we come to this section of Mark, Mark's using a structure that we're going to see in other parts of the gospel, where he takes two stories and he puts them together. It's called sandwiching by some. It's because we have a story that starts, then another story that's put in the middle, and then the first story resumes. And that's what we see here. In verses 20 and 21, we read about the family of Jesus. And then that story picks up again in verse 31. But in the middle, we have a story about the scribes and this interaction with Jesus. And the reason Mark uses this technique is because he's bringing together two stories that are emphasizing common themes. And by structuring it this way, he's drawing attention to these themes. There's more attention focused on what's being communicated. Ideally, we would consider them all at the same time, but that seemed like it would be a really long sermon. So we're going to take the outer parts of the sandwich today. We're going to look at the bread, this teaching on the family of Jesus, and then next week we'll move into the middle. And we'll spend more time next week talking about how the stories relate to one another. But let me just kind of give you a, a preview and something you can start thinking about as we head towards next week. Like I said, the outer story is about the family of Jesus. The inner story is about Jesus and the scribes. And what we see in both 
is that the family of Jesus and the scribes, they both misunderstand who Jesus is. Both of them indicate that at some level he's out of his mind. And both of them want to silence him. For different reasons, they want to get Jesus off of the public scene. So we see the stories working together to communicate these wrong views of Jesus. But as the stories come together, we also have this strong affirmation about the authority of Jesus and also what it means to be a true follower of his. So two stories working together. This morning we'll look at the outer story. Next week at the inner story and consider how they emphasize the same things and the point is made stronger because of their connection. With that said, let's read our passage for this morning. Mark chapter three. We will start reading in verse 20. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. Verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister, my mother. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God lasts forever. Now as we come to the text, let's just remember where we left off last week. Everywhere Jesus goes, crowds are flocking to him. People who want to be healed, who want to see his miracles. But in the second half of the passage we considered last week, we saw that Jesus retreats to the top of a mountain and he brings with him some followers and out of that group he appoints 12. 12 apostles who will be with him and who he will send out. So in verse 19, they're up on the mountain and now we're told in verse 20 that Jesus returns home. We know they're in Capernaum, so most likely he returns to the house of Peter where he lives in Capernaum. We talked about that in chapter one. So he goes home, but as he goes there, once again, the, the crowds are flocking to him. So verse 20 says, again, the crowds gathered. Well, Mark tells us that the crowds were, were so relentless, so ever-present that they could not even eat. It reminds me of our wedding. Maybe, maybe this was your experience. That at a wedding, everybody gets to eat except for the bride and groom. And it makes sense. There's so many people there that, that you want to see and speak to and thank and give attention to. And so the bride and groom spend all their time with others and never have time to settle in and eat. And I've never been so hungry as I was when we left our wedding, which is ironic because we spent so much time making sure that everyone who came would have food to eat. But we see something similar here. The crowds are so persistent that Jesus can't even get a break for a snack. This is another sign of his popularity of the demand that there was for people to get near to Jesus. So many people are being drawn to him. But what we see is that his family, they have a, a different view of what's going on. 
as they hear about the crowds, as they hear about all that Jesus is doing and saying, they determine that it's gone too far. They determine that it's time for an intervention. So we read in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. I asked earlier how you thought the family of Jesus might perceive his ministry. Well, here we get some insight. At this point, this is their evaluation. He's gone insane. He's out of his mind. And we aren't given any insights into their reasoning. We just get the results of their evaluation. But let's think about what we know. What we know is that Jesus is doing and saying things that are putting him at odds with the religious leaders and with their religious establishment. And that Jesus is doing things that good religious people did not do. Remember who he's hanging out with, eating with tax collectors and sinners. Maybe his family's heard that he's not fasting and he's doing things that are unadvisable on the Sabbath. His words and his actions are moving him to the fringes and probably beyond what they consider normal and orthodox. These are things that raised concerns. But it may have also been a concern to them that he seemingly has no regard for his own safety. They've heard about the relentless crowds that are swarming. We, we read last week he was fearful that the crowds may crush him. Perhaps they've even caught wind of the plot of the Pharisees. That there are those who have set their mind and started making plans to put Jesus to death. Suffice it to say, it seems like things are getting out of hand. And as his family talks about everything they are seeing and hearing, this is their, this is their assessment. He's out of his mind. We must rescue him from himself. We see that the ones involved are his mother and his brothers. And I can't help but think, wonder what, what Mary was thinking. Of course, Mary had been told by the angels before his birth who Jesus would be. She knew better than anyone that his birth was miraculous. She knew he had been set apart by God, that his life would be different. But, but maybe just this doesn't seem right. Being at odds with the religious establishment, a seeming disregard for tradition, calling fishermen and tax collectors his disciples, it doesn't add up. And we don't know the conversations that were had between his brothers and his mother, but we do have their final assessment. He's out of his mind, and we see their response. They go to get him. We see in verse 21, they go to seize him is the word that Mark uses, which is a word that he uses quite a few times in the Gospel of Mark. But usually it's translated as arrest. When we speak of those going to arrest Jesus, it means to capture or to bind. The brothers of Jesus are going to get him and they're willing to take him by force. It's an intense response which begs the question, why? Why are they doing this? And we've already alluded to some things, but I think there's probably at least two things at play. First, they probably are concerned for his safety. They've heard the threats of the Pharisees. They've seen the intensity of the crowds. 
they probably fear that he's unaware of the kind of danger he's in, so they are going to save him from himself by force if necessary. That's likely one of the reasons for the intervention. But I think there may be also more to it. Remember, they are a good Jewish family, likely well-known, well-thought-of in their community. But now with Jesus being at odds with the Pharisees, it's possible that they're concerned with what kind of light this might shed on them as a family. In a sense, Jesus is living as a black sheep, and his actions could harm them. And not just their reputation, but potentially their safety. Like I said, we don't know all of their reasonings, but here's what we do know. They have considered that he has lost his mind and they are going to get him. As we look at what's described in these verses and as we consider what's said in the verses that we are headed towards, here's something I want us to consider. That this was the family of Jesus, yet they are not true followers of Jesus. Takes us back to what we considered last week, that familiarity and association with Jesus is not enough. This is the the family of Jesus. Presumably, the people who knew him the best and likely the people who loved him the most. They knew him and they loved him, but they do not yet trust him as Messiah and Lord. And I don't think we have any reason to doubt their love for him. What they're doing may actually show their love for him. He was their son and brother. But for all their love and all their knowledge of him, they still don't understand him. They don't understand what God is doing. And in a sense, they've become an example of how not to respond to Jesus. They know Jesus so well, but they miss who he is and they miss what he's doing. And of course, their response to Jesus and their view of Jesus stands in in stark contrast to other people. Over the last few weeks, we've considered those who were ready to give everything to Jesus. Those who wholeheartedly trusted him and gave their lives to him as disciples. Many people have believed they've been willing to leave everything. But Jesus' family is not there yet. They see him as someone who needs to be saved from himself. Now, thankfully, we know this. If you read through the Gospels, we do see that eventually his family believes. They become his disciples. Some of his brothers go to be leaders in the early church. But at this point, their evaluation is he has lost his mind. I think this serves as another reminder to us of the difference between close association with Jesus and true faith in Jesus. What we see is people who knew Jesus well, who loved him, but aren't his disciples. They aren't his followers. And we can be guilty of the same. Maybe you think it's enough that you were born into a Christian family. Or that's enough that you gather with the church on a regular basis. What we're gonna see as we keep going is that even being a part of the earthly family of Jesus does not automatically make you a follower of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus isn't based on family ties. It's not based on familiarity. Having a saving relationship with Jesus, this comes through repentance, through submission to him as Lord. 
It's a matter of faith. And at this point, his family's not there yet. In fact, when they look at everything he's doing, all that he's saying, their assessment is that he's crazy. Maybe you've never thought of this, that there were people who knew and loved Jesus, yet thought that he was off of his rocker. And maybe this is a really appropriate place for me to remind you, that as you follow Jesus, and as you live the way that he has called you to live, people will, maybe even the people closest to you, they may be convinced that you have lost your mind. After all, you believe in a book that was written thousands of years ago. And not only do you believe in it, but you've decided to pattern your life after what it says. So your worldview has changed. Your priorities have changed. Your sexual ethic has changed. Perhaps the things that used to be entertaining to you no longer are. You don't go the places you used to go or do all the things that you used to do. The way you spend your time has changed. You're spending a Sunday morning watching a guy on a video talk about this old book. And there's a difference in the way you think about what you have, about your money. You don't spend it all on yourself, but you're ready and willing to, to give it away to others and to the church. Maybe you can understand that with all this put together, people may think that you've become some kind of a religious zealot. Maybe you're not thinking straight. Maybe you're running to religion as a place to hide or as something to make you feel better. And of course, we've not even mentioned the claims of the gospel yet. It really gets interesting when we start telling people that we believe that, that God himself created everything. And then he came to earth and was born of a virgin came to our earth as a baby, lived a perfect life, died on a cross as a substitute for our sins. And we believe that the only way that you can be brought into a right relationship with God is to believe in the substitutionary sacrifice of the God-man who was sacrificed. We believe that God does judge sinners. And that the only way to be saved from his wrath is to believe in Jesus. This is what we believe, isn't it, church? But we have to recognize, by most, this is viewed, because it is, as a very narrow gospel. There's only one way to be saved. As we express our faith, as we tell people this is what we believe, their assessment may be that we have gone off the deep end. Some of the people closest to Jesus saw the things he was doing and determined that he must be crazy and the same may be said of you. If you truly live the way God has called you to live and speak on his behalf, people will question you. I would even go so far as to say if no one ever looks at you sideways, no one ever questions your commitment, no one ever questions the claims you make, Perhaps you're not speaking and living as boldly for Christ as he's called you to. Something to consider. Jesus says that we are in the world, but we are no longer of the world. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. 
The old has passed away, the new has come. We are new and therefore we will be different than those around us who have not been recreated in Christ. Jesus makes it clear that as his followers, we can expect the same kind of opposition that he received. This is a part of the Christian life. Jesus lived through it as our example. And he said, just as they persecuted me, so will they you. Now in our context, it's likely we will never experience physical threats. But as we associate with Jesus, we most likely will be looked on with skepticism. And just like the family of Jesus tried to rescue him, you may have people who want to try to rescue you from the ways of Jesus. They may perceive your commitment to Christ as radical or extreme. And it may even come, it may even come from people who are Christians. Maybe you've heard something like this before. I believe in Jesus too. But the things you're saying go too far. This is the reality, church. That what we believe, if we believe the Bible, contradicts American Christian norms. So if we live the way we've been called to, it's likely we will stand out. And it shouldn't surprise us if we get pushed back against. I'll encourage you with the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reality is that as followers of Christ, we may not always fit in with the world. We may not even fit in with our own families. But we can find hope and comfort in Christ knowing this. That in him, in Jesus, we have a family that is real and longer lasting than our earthly families. That's what we see as we keep moving and keep listening to the words of Christ. Let's go down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. So they're arriving. We saw earlier they made plans to go and get him. Now they're, they've arrived. Standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Jesus is inside the house with his disciples. His mother and his brothers are outside. I think this is worth noting. As I was reading this passage this week, I kept noticing these words, inside and outside. And then as I read others, I noticed that I wasn't the only one. I think there's something symbolic here. We're told twice that the mother and brothers of Christ were outside the house, while Jesus and his disciples are inside the house. And I think it's symbolic of the pronouncement that Jesus is about to make, that there are two different groups. There are those who are part of his true family, and there are those who aren't. There are those who are outside and there are those who are inside. Notice what happens. Someone tells Jesus that his mom and his brothers are outside and then Jesus says this, 
who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, before, before we go any further, I do want to say this first. Kind of a disclaimer. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is meant to be an insult or disparaging towards his family. You can read through the Gospels and find references of the love of Jesus for his family, especially for his mother. And I don't think we should read this response from Jesus and suggest that he has a, a low view of the earthly family. This verse doesn't give us permission to have anything less than love towards the family that God has given us. Let's not forget, God designed the family. God has brought the family together and God has sovereignly put you in the particular family that he has. This is by his design. and Jesus is not here implying that we should disregard the families that he's given us. So don't read this and walk away with the idea that Jesus is anti-family or that you can ignore your parents because Jesus was dismissive towards his mom. That's not what's going on here. What is going on is that Jesus is taking an opportunity to teach an important spiritual truth. Jesus knows the importance of the family. He knows that being part of a family is to be joined together with a people in a unique and a special way. And he takes that beautiful picture of the family and he uses it to teach something significant about what it means to have an authentic relationship with him. He's introducing a metaphor that's, that's used throughout the scriptures. That to be in a relationship with him, to be joined to Christ, is to be adopted into the family of God. God designed and God gave us our earthly families as good gifts. But Jesus is helping us see that when we're joined to him, we're welcomed into another family. And this other family, this new family that we're welcomed into through Christ, it is just as real and even more permanent than our earthly family. I want you to think about that. That the family we are joined into as the people of God, this is a real family, and it's more permanent than our earthly families. One writer said it this way, this new family relationship is far superior, far stronger, far more satisfying, far more demanding, and far more dear than any human family relationship. That's saying a lot because the families we've been given are good gifts. But Jesus offers us something even greater. We can be welcomed into his family. We can be joined to him. As Jesus sits in this house, presumably around a table, he acknowledges that there are those who are inside and there are those who are outside. There are those who are united to him, and there are those who are not yet part of his family. Which invites the question, what makes someone a part of Jesus' true family? It's an important question, right? Verse 34, excuse me, 35. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. 
Jesus says that those who are joined to him, who are part of his family, are those who do the will of God. This is how we recognize who's a part of the family of Jesus. It's those who obey the will of God, which starts with faith in Christ. So don't hear me saying, don't hear Jesus saying that we earn our entrance into the family of God through our works. No, the first part of God's will for us is that we would believe in Jesus. We have verses like John chapter 6, verse 40. This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is God's will, that through Jesus we have eternal life. But what we know is that those who place their faith in Jesus, those who are united to him, go on to live lives of obedience. Our faith in Jesus is made evident through a life lived for him in accordance with the will of God. Who are a part of the family of God? It's all of those who do the will of God. All those who are united to God and follow God through Jesus. And if we believe when we believe we are joined to his family. We read in John 1, all who receive him, who believe in his name, have been given the right to be children of God. If you have believed, you are a part of the family of God. And you've probably heard that a lot, but I just want you to let that settle in and consider the reality of it. We are his brothers and sisters. Jesus, sitting in that room, said, this is my family. And consider who was in the room, church. Former tax collectors and sinners. People who had been rejected by society. Jesus' family is made up of people from all different kinds of backgrounds. Aren't you glad that Jesus brings people into his family from every walk of life? Jesus brings sinners and forgives us and makes us part of his family. We come from all different places, all different backgrounds, but we have this in common. Repentance and faith in Christ and our union with him. Earlier I said that there were those who were the family of Jesus, but were not yet true followers. And now we see that there were those who were true followers of Jesus and as such are called his family. And if you're in Christ, that is you. We could spend months unpacking what it means to be in union with Christ and joined to his family. Let me just mention a few things that I think we can see from this text about what it means to be the true family of God. The first thing I want us to consider is this, that those who are the true family of Jesus will recognize the beauty of his words and of his ways. So we look at the story. We see that his earthly family saw what he was doing, saw how he was living, heard what he was saying. And they went to capture him. They wanted to silence him. They surveyed the situation. They determined he was out of his mind. Of course, our perspective of the words and the ways of Jesus should be different. As Christ followers, we should have eyes that are open to the beauty and the rightness of the things of God. And not only that, we should long to obey him, to be people who obey the will of God. So that's the first thing. As the true family of God, we should 
We should love his ways. We should love his words. We should be obedient. Second, and this goes close with the first, we should be unashamed to be associated with him. And and I know this can be a temptation. We can be tempted to shrink back. When someone calls us on the carpet, they know we're a Christian and they ask if we believe what the Bible says about this particular issue. The temptation can be to shrink back. We saw in the story that the family of Jesus, they wanted to get Jesus out of the public eye. They weren't ready to embrace him. The temptation can be the same for us. But I do want to remind you of the words of Jesus from Mark chapter 8. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Which is why I say, those who are part of the true family of God are unashamed. We gladfully stand in fellowship and obedience with him. We can take comfort and we can take boldness. We can have boldness even when we're tempted to be ashamed. We can, we can be confident knowing this, that we are a part of the family of God, which leads to another consideration. That as the true family of Jesus, there may be times when we are put at odds with our earthly families. It may happen. As we live for Christ, we can expect that there will be people, maybe in our own families, maybe the people whom you love the most, who aren't willing to accept our love for Christ and our commitment to him. We must be ready for this. That said, I think we should admit that we are very fortunate. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom this is a daily reality. Those who went into their faith knowing that if they believed, they would be rejected. There's probably parts of the world where this passage of Scripture is well known and quoted often. Because what is our hope when we're rejected by our earthly families? This is our hope and this is what we can cling to, that we are not without a family. But we have been welcomed into Jesus' family. This is the comfort We are his family, and any loss we experience will be made up for. We see hints of that in Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What's he saying? You may lose it all here, but he will give it all back to you and more, both in this life and into eternity. Certainly, this would be one of the hardest things to experience, being cut off from family because of your faith. I have not experienced it, 
But if we do, the hope of Mark 10 and Mark 3 is the joy and the reality that being united to Christ, we are welcomed into a new family. And a family that can outweigh any loss we may experience. This is our hope. And I want to leave you with this. That as the true family of Jesus, we should rejoice in the privilege of being part of his family. I want to say again, the Bible and Jesus himself speak highly of the earthly family. It is a good gift. Let's not devalue that. But in God's kindness, our earthly family is not the only family we have. Or even the truest family we have. If you are in Christ, you are his brother or sister. You are a part of the family of God. And the way that manifests itself now is through the church. We get to experience that in a small sense, even now as we live in community and in fellowship with one another. I have been blessed with a great earthly family. Mom and dad and sisters and brothers, wife and children. I count it a privilege to be a part of the family I was born into and now have myself. But I also count it a privilege and an honor and a gift from God to be a part of his family as it's manifest in this local assembly. If you're in Christ, you're a part of the family of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Would you join me in prayer? God, I come to you now on behalf of my brothers and sisters to say thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you that through him we can be a part of your family. It's unbelievable. You've not only saved us, you've not only forgiven us, but you've called us sons and daughters, brothers and sisters of Christ and joint heirs with him. God, I ask you now to help us live in light of these realities. Help us grow in our knowledge and obedience of your will. Help us to not be ashamed of you or your commands. God, I pray for those among us who may know what it's like to be rejected by an earthly family because of their faith in you. God, I pray that you would comfort them in the knowledge that they are not without a family, but they are part of your family. God, as a church, I pray that you would help us to live consistently as your family, in unity and in peace and in love and in witness. Help us as we strive to be faithful followers of Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Church, hear the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I love you, church, and I will look forward to seeing you soon.